Welcome to the 13th episode of the Animal Riot Podcast, brought to you by Animal Riot Press, a literary press for books that matter. It's your producer, Katie, here, and this episode has been edited to reflect our new name. If you're new to the Animal Riot community, welcome, and you can find out more about us at AnimalRiotPress.com. Now on to the episode with your hosts, Brian Birnbaum, and today's guests, George Sawaya and Jared Marcel Pollan. I'm your host, Brian Birnbaum. We're here today with Dead Rabbits OGs. George, as you know, is a poet and fiction writer from Alabama. Roll Tide. Roll Tide. Roll Tide. Okay, good. That, that was that was indeed a call and response. <laughs> and you guys complied brilliantly. The state knows what's best. Please comply. Anyway, George and Jared are joining me to talk about Jared's forthcoming collection, Unified Field of Loneliness, which will be coming out with Crow's Nest. It's their debut publication. Which is a an offshoot of Political Animal online. They're they're just online, Jared, right? Political Animal. Okay, yeah, they're online journal. And today's brand of fuckery is brought to you by Surviving Vivance, which I took for the first time yesterday at seven thirty in the morning, and it, and did not stop feeling it until today when I woke up, which is a little too long in my opinion. I'll, I'll more reports later. Anyway, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. Let's get back on to the floor. Let's get back on brand. There's no amphetamine use in Jared's collection. So let's talk about some other things like Jared's collection. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's actually, it's the unified field of loneliness. The unified. Oh, wow. I forgot a a very important article and that's upsetting. Maybe we'll go back and edit that. Maybe we'll just keep it real and just, you know, let human flaws shine through. So yeah, let's talk about like where you started with this or I don't know. Let's, or, or let's go back further far you know further farther do you want to start with like your writing process and like where you came from as a writer yeah sure kate our, our producers just signed to me let's start with his birth okay which is probably worse than starting like a novel with like i woke up <laughs> <laughs> though though i will Wait, say it's worse than waking up from a dream yeah right a, at the beginning of a story. which is, yeah. which, you know it's funny coincidentally i saw uh seth the other day uh, seth Katz will have him on sometime a fellow sarah lawrence grad and he was reading world the world according to garp and that book actually, I think, starts with him being born. And I'm, and like, honestly, I just don't know how you get away with something like that, but he did. Anyway, Jared's book does not start with someone being born or waking up. So, yeah, let's, let, let's start with, let's start with something else. Well, I started writing shortly after I finished undergrad, actually. While I was in school, I didn't have much interest in being a fiction writer. I'd always loved reading. And I thought maybe the only writing I would ever do was, in journalism. At that time, I was more interested in becoming a political journalist because I studied poli-sci and I studied English lit. And I thought that was a good way to fuse the two things that I had studied in school and try to parlay that into some kind of career. But after doing just a bit of journalism work for the school newspaper, I very quickly discovered that it was something that I absolutely did not want to do and that I didn't have the level of freedom that I really wanted out of writing. So around the time that I was graduating from undergrad, I well, I actually, I actually do want to ask you a question real quick about that. Was it because like you had to follow a narrative based on facts? Was that like merely it, or or was it something internal to the actual school journal? No, it's not because it was constrained to facts per se. I mean, I do write a lot of essays and get a lot of joy out of writing them. Right, right, right. It was more stylistic guidelines. It was more the dictates of any journalism standard. George, having probably done some journalism work, probably knows this as well. Most of your readers read at like a tenth grade level. You're discouraged from using the personal pronoun. 
first person pronoun. Right, right. You're discouraged from using certain certain things stylistically. You're discouraged from going on tangents. You're discouraged discouraged from using certain kind of language and certain kinds of imagery. So not not just so not just facts, but the narrative is very narrow. Yeah. So it's narrowed. Okay. Yeah. And anyways, and it and you know the the journalism work that I did, you know, I already got a glimpse into the the trench work of what that's like. You know, going to meet someone and then interviewing them and then transcribing the interview and then going back and writing like you know 800 words and then having it cut down to 600 words and then the stuff that got cut out was the stuff that I thought maybe was the most significant or the most important and then it running like in the school newspaper which nobody read anyway and so it was very the whole experience was very unsatisfying and very disenchanting yeah, yeah. fiction to me always seemed like pure freedom so shortly after I graduated and I was confronted with that adult question of what am I going to do with the rest of my life? It seemed to me like giving this fiction writing thing would be the best possible course of action. So this was the summer of 2012 and the applications for Sarah Lawrence were due, the applications for all grad programs, including Sarah Lawrence were due that December. That, that fall? Yeah, that, yep. I think it was December yep. 31st of that year. And we are circa Kobe Bryant tearing his Achilles in the, <laughs> in the timeline of his career. Just to give us, yeah, uh, just, so, just, just to give yeah, our just, just to some give some context. Yeah. So this- Yeah, we applied that fall and then we heard back that spring. Yeah. That's right. So this would have been the summer of 2012 when I graduated. And at that time, I'd never written a story, never written anything seriously. I dabbled in poetry a bit when I was an undergrad and it was all shit for the most part. It was <laughs> yeah. derivative, mythopoetic, like- you know, T.S. Eliot kind of poetry. At least you can admit it. <laughs> at least you can admit it, man. You know. <laughs> so, but I'd never written a story with any conviction before. I'd never written. Uh, I'd never written any piece of fiction, long form fiction, seriously before. So, I had about six months to teach myself how to write a good enough story to get into a program like Sarah Lawrence. And I think I wrote two or three stories in that interim. And the the last one that I wrote, I submitted, and it was accepted. And then we started the following year in September. So it it all happened very quickly, actually. By the time I was getting ready to apply to programs, I had, you know, literally no experience writing fiction. So whether it was a stroke of luck or some demonstration of early talent, I don't know, but I managed to get into the program and that was the first hurdle, the first confidence boost. And then by the time I was leaving that program two years later, I had half of this collection assembled and I knew that I was in it for the long haul, that this was not just like a, a pipe dream or a passing fancy, that this is really what I wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, if I, if I'm just going to interject and mention that, you know, at the beginning of that program, I was, you were like the first person I had ever, I think, I think you were the first person I really talked to. We were sitting out on that lawn and like this orientation party. That's right. And you were, you had, yeah, we um, were talking, we were talking, we were talking about metaphysics or something. And you, then a couple yeah. of days later, I, I don't know if you had met George by that point, but you know, I think it's funny. You should talk about you guys meeting because <laughs> you guys are basically, you know, I mean like demographically, like, you know, fairly, fairly opposite in a way, at least for Westerners, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, now, I was there. I was there when y'all met. I'm glad I was so memorable, but we actually walked up to the, to the campus together, Jared and I, cause he just moved in what, like a week before. Yeah. I moved in the last week of August and I had very little communication with George before I moved out. I, uh, unlike everybody else, I didn't go to Sarah Lawrence to kind of scout 
you know, the school and the program and see what the faculty was like. I wanted to get out of Windsor so bad that I was just like, fuck it. I'm going to go. I don't care what it's like. Any, anywhere but here. Yeah, anywhere <laughs> but here. So so I moved in not really having had a lot of contact with George. I think I sent him one email and I said, like, what's the house look like? And he wrote, like, it's all right. <laughs> and that was pretty much it. <laughs> <laughs> roll Tide. <laughs> roll Tide. <laughs> it's all right. You know, hyphen, Roll Tide. And I have to. But, and yeah, I, yeah. Yeah. People should, people should also know that Windsor is like, you know, you can see Detroit, like across the, across, what is it? What lake? separates you guys the detroit river oh it's the detroit river never mind yeah okay. windsor I, I i just think it's important yeah windsor <laughs> to know windsor to know. yeah windsor straddles the right side of the detroit river if i stand on my back deck i can see the ambassador bridge and the renaissance center so so you're like a you're like an american emeritus or something like that i don't know yeah well i grew up on america's doorstep and yeah you know i was conscious of the fact that i wasn't american but I always felt much closer to America spiritually and intellectually than I did to my home country. And Windsor's kind of a weird place because it's so close to the United States. You know, people use Fahrenheit instead of Celsius. Some people use, you know, feet instead of centimeters. Some people use miles per hour instead of kilometers, things like that. People usually watch the American news to get their weather. There's only one, are, there's, are the, there's only one Canadian is, is station like the, on TV. You know, it, it is kind of like a weird sort of that is strange. American bubble inside of Canada. Interesting. Okay, so yeah, so you you graduate as uh, we all did somehow, despite the Tom fuckery that took place at twenty five Stillwell, <laughs> where you and George moved in, and yeah, so you had half the collection, and then what happened after that? Well, I wrote a novel, and then one or two stories were written during breaks that I took while I was writing the novel, and then the last four stories were written in two thousand and. 17. And once I had about 10 stories together, 10 seemed like a nice symmetrical number. I think story, story collections that have like, you know, 14, 15 stories in them are too long, actually. I think a short story collection should be lean by design. And I feel, yeah, I feel like that. I feel like you feel like that about albums too, or at least I do. Maybe I'm just projecting. No, no, that's absolutely true. I have this thing with the number 10. I think all my favorite records have 10 songs on them. So Pearl Jam 10 must be your, your, your favorite <laughs> album of all time. <laughs> must be. I want to mention also that it's like kind of ironic because you had finished half this collection. Not like, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly if you had like an absolute direction, but you did, you did write that novel and then you got an agent for that novel and it's been pretty difficult to find like a publisher for the book but for the novel but this collection kind of seemed a little bit easier to place probably because of your relationship with political animal but i don't know it just goes to show you like we don't know what the fuck is going to happen in this in this writing game you know that's right so yeah so i actually completed the novel about a year and a half before i finished the collection of stories and then i sat on the novel for a bit while i was trying to find an agent for it and during that time i met Louis uh, Slosky and Alexander Wall, who run uh, Political Animal Magazine. And they were starting a press of their own called Crow's Nest Books, literary fiction press. And they liked the essays that I'd written for them. And in my byline, my biography, I had a note in there about, you know, that I'd had fiction published in other journals and stuff like that. And they asked if they could read the manuscript for the novel. And at that time, I wasn't willing to let the novel go quite yet because I was still looking for agents. And so I sent them the collection of stories and they expressed interest in it and they offered to publish it. And so that's how that came about. And that was at the beginning of 2017 and the collection is about to be published. Well, by the time this airs, it will be in the past tense. So the collection was published on March 15th. 
So it's being published this 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 week at the time of speaking. Excellent, excellent. We just moved to the fourth dimension. All right, yeah, that's very cool. Which I'm which which I'm very excited about. My favorite story so far. I've I've only read the first few because I was gonna be a you know as they call it beta reader these days, <laughs> but you know I got I got pretty much like completely time fucked by you know starting this press and like get trying to get my novel together and all this shit. So I'm really excited to read it. I, you know, my favorite one so far is in a nutshell, which is what, is it still the second story in there? No, that story is placed near the end of the collection now, but that was actually, Oh, you moved that it. was the very, that was one of the first stories I wrote. Actually, I wrote that in the fall of 2013 at Sarah Lawrence. So that would have been like yeah. my fourth or fifth yeah. story ever. Was that our first semester there? Well, you yeah. said the, what? Yeah. That's so Mary's class. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. That's an esoteric reference. So yeah, talk about that story a little bit, just because I, I love it and I can speak it to it a little more. We can act like it's the single off your album, okay. 10 re- Redux. <laughs> well, the the In a Nutshell story was inspired by the, a particular voice using the second person pronoun. Now, most of the time, like 99.9% of the time, stories told with the second person pronoun are awful, you know? Yeah. <laughs> stories that use- yeah, stories that use you are almost always terrible and they feel sort of gimmicky and completely governed by style and are usually playing games with the reader in some kind of way. And I really don't find that very interesting. So, but I heard this voice talking in my head and it was the voice of a young boy moving out to school very much like I was at that time. Well, let's let's be clear, uh, like an 18 year old boy, you know, let's not. Right. You know, with all the, with, you know, with, you know, with, with the, with the climate, you know, <laughs> the climate, like, you know, finding with leaving Neverland coming out, we don't want to like, you know, mix our opportunities. <laughs> right. Here. Yeah. So no. <laughs> so yeah. So, I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting a shit look from my producers. <laughs> let's be, let's be, let's be, let's, let's leave Michael out of this. All right. He's <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So let's be clear. A young man, a young man, he started, he's starting undergrad. And it's a young young man from the Midwest going out to California to start school. And he he's stuck in a traffic jam in his parents' car. And he's just sort of talking to himself. And he's addressing himself, as we all do when we talk to ourselves in our own head, as you. There's this kind of voice in his head. And then there's the second voice that's addressing the first voice. And it was that kind of dialectic, that kind of conversation with yourself where you're addressing yourself as you that you you or you or we i would say we is sometimes used by yeah by of course people. in fact there's in fact there's a character in book of numbers by josh cohen who specific who strictly refers to himself as we oh really and everyone else is like a plural it's fascinating but anyway that's not not neither here nor there continue right and it's strange the way we do that you know like if we you know if we drop our phone or something we'll say like oh you idiot and it's like well, who are we talking to yeah, yeah you know right. why exactly. and why are we saying you why don't i just say like i'm an idiot out loud why do i have to say you so it just shows that there's this second voice inside our head the second voice that addresses ourselves as you and that was what was really intriguing to me and that was the way in the story and the whole story is just a sort of internal monologue of this young man talking to himself while he's stuck in traffic. Yeah, that is my favorite story so far that I've read from it. But especially just because the 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 voice of it, not just not. I mean, the, I agree with you. The second person thing can just really be a kind of like a gimmick, a gimmicky trope. But uh, I yeah, and I really like how you had a, a clearly defined reason for going into it. But I especially liked it. You know, it kind of reminded me in a sense of like something like Forever Overhead. Even though it's you know Forever Overhead, I think is in 
What is that in first person? No, Forever Overhead uses the second person, and that was actually. Oh, it is in second yeah. person. Yeah. It, well, it, it reminded me. It reminded me of that story, just in the same sense that it's a very small snapshot. Like you know, it's this very like you know, it's this. There's hours that are going by, right? Yeah. And they're stuck in this traffic jam. And the story is really all like texture. Mm-hmm. The the observations and you know, I guess just the perceptions that he's having are just they're very rife. Like each block is like its own little story. And it, and it's told in this way that it's like just the observation itself moves the plot. Like, you know, there's there's basically no description of what's happening. It's like, this is here, this is here, this is here, this is what's happening, you know? And Forever Overhead is kind of like that, too. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if you took inspiration from that story specifically, but it reminded no, me. No, well, actually, I was... I was- I felt discouraged when I started writing the story. I actually didn't want to use the second person pronoun because forever overhead used it. And I thought like, I, I see, thought yeah, like yeah. this is, I thought like this is too close to the forever overhead story. Like it's going to seem like it's, you know, derivative or something. So I actually, I nearly changed the piece and tried to do it with a first person pronoun because I wanted to distance it from the Wallace piece, but it just didn't work. And so at, at, I ultimately decided like, fuck it. I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to write the story the way I imagined it. But, but mm-hmm, that piece, mm-hmm. that piece certainly was firing. And I think I, I brought that piece in that semester, that first semester at school, because we had to share a piece, every one of us each week. And that was the one that I brought in. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to, we're going to get back to this. We'll talk a little bit more about the book, but I just want to, I want to take a little detour and, and I'm going to turn to George. I'm turning in my seat towards George. Imagine everyone, everyone imagine me turning to George. Our producers are giving me strange looks, turning. They're finding George. They can't. Okay. Oh, she found George. Okay. George, I want both of you guys to talk about this, but I want, through your eyes, what it was like to meet a spindly, brooding, dark-featured, but somewhat somewhat pallid, you know? Because, you know, in Windsor, you don't get too much sun. Canadian. (laughs) <laughs> can we throw can we throw something redemptive in there like you know charming or you know Well you're you're no no you're not because you're not Jared. you're 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 you know you're a misanthrope you know Caustic. you're an intellectual a misanthrope cervic. that's Yeah that that is charming uh, that's that's what our producers are saying she, she they're they're saying that that is your charm is how disdainful you are <laughs> <laughs> Oh, George, George, but anyway, George, George can probably describe very well that first meeting. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I was twenty five still. Well, so you roll up, you roll up in your Jag, and it's you know with the cracked windshield. You know <laughs> that's going to be sold in a little bit, so you can so you can buy more beer for us over the over the bridge <laughs> in New Jersey. Yeah, I took that broken yeah, Jaguar baby. over to George Washington with like no brakes. Yeah, George is but hurtling was... up from Alabama in the Jag, and, and Jared's. <laughs> Flying in first class from Canada. No, that's not what happened. But anyway, continue. <laughs> that automobile. That automobile was an ill-advised purchase. Don't buy a 2004 oh, Jaguar. I totally, I totally disagree. No, it's bad. <laughs> bad stuff. It's a great-looking car, but terrible underneath. It was like a Ford Taurus. Don't worry about it. No, I was, I was stoked to meet a Canadian. You know, I mean, that was, that might as well have been Belarus for all I knew. You know, I, I grew up. Uh, <laughs> I, I I barely poked a noggin above the Mason Dixon for the first twenty five years of my life. So uh, getting to meet a, a you know Canadian uh, was a was a great a great triumph. We broke each other's mold though. Jared of course was expecting some 
slack-jawed uh, hillbilly spitting tobacco on the stoop of the house we both shared while I was expecting some apologetic, apoplectic, like, light beer drinker, you know. Uh, so uh, <laughs> we, we we surprised each other, thankfully, and we were fast friends, I think. Uh, not not least of which because we were stuck with one another. But I think we had, uh, we had so much more in common than either one of us certainly thought. And uh, to go back to, uh, to Jared's collection, I mean, one of the first things that I ever read from him was in a nutshell, which was shocking because he he confessed uh, at the time how little writing he'd actually sat down and done, and and I knew he was politically minded, which was great because I was I, as, as he mentioned earlier, I also studied journalism, and and you know we uh, we had certainly had that in common, and and had both given up on our journalistic aspirations in favor of fiction initially, at least. So we had we had too much in common, in fact, and uh, uh, an appreciation for the. For the amber spirits, be them Canadian or uh, Kentuckian in origin, certainly helped move things along. And uh, and just uh, I, you know, I, I I may come off more affable, but I think I'm I'm an equal misanthrope when all is said and done to our yeah, you're a gregarious misanthrope. I am, I am, because I like I like fucking with people. So if you're not interesting, I'll make you interesting one way or the other. We'll we'll, we'll get you, we'll get you of use. You know. With enough George pours, we'll make you guys. That's right. Interesting. That's right. You bet. You know, yes. George. Do you yeah. know a? Do you know? I took. You know. You you read my. You edited my novel, so you know that I took my favorite line from you. You said. You know. You were talking about boring people, and you were just like, I just want to tell them, like, you know, just do drugs, <laughs> start doing it. <laughs> like you are. You are not interesting enough. <laughs> You, you got to complicate yourself. Like you were, you're, you're tabula rasa right now, and you just need to sprinkle a little something onto yourself. Pick, pick a drug. Pick, pick yeah. reality. All right, so, so yeah, you. It can be anything, but you, but you need to, you need to complicate. You know? Yeah, complicate the narrative. <laughs> let's turn, let's turn you, let's turn you from a, uh, from a John Grisham novel into, uh, into a Langston Hughes poem. Yeah, there you go. Or someone you're more just blank space. Someone more drug-addled. Right? You're you're <laughs> camouflaging into the into the beige of the walls. You're gonna need to you're gonna need to to, to develop a, a a little too enthusiastic of a taste for bourbon or conversation. Something, <laughs> yeah. something. A borderline problem. A, a borderline yeah. problematic. Uh, yes, drinking absolutely. Habit. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, those were two things that uh, George and I really shared with each other when we lived together. Like he said, I think we both expected the absolute worst of each other. I was expecting some like knuckle dragging red state, you know, Cro Magnon male. <laughs> and and I think Cro Magnon, that's that's a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think he I think he summed up the archetypical Canadian pretty well. I can't improve on that, so I won't try, but <laughs> Yeah. That is true. It's true. But uh, yeah, when I when I oh, Yeah, so the Yes. But when, when did when did you guys realize, you know, like at what moment? So you move in and like at what moment do you realize that you actually have a lot of crossover tastes? Oh, probably the first night I was in there or the second night, maybe I, the first night was kind of chaotic. As I remember, we got in quite late and like blew up a mattress for myself and I was introduced to George, but we didn't really speak much. And I think maybe it was the second or third night that I was there. I was assembling some Ikea furniture and George offered me a Budweiser and we went and sat on the stoop. And I believe we talked about Borges. We talked about postmodernism. We talked about Hemingway. We talked about Faulkner. I believe I asked George like who in a very sort of like almost like 
you better not get this question wrong kind of way. I asked him like, who's the greatest Southern writer? And George said Faulkner. And I was like, that's right. And <laughs> <laughs> damn. Yeah. And of course, and, years uh, later, that's right. And we would go visit Faulkner's house together years after that. So it was a very, I wouldn't describe it maybe as like a lightning strike, but it was, it was apparent to me almost right away that uh, this was someone that I was going to get along with, which was relieving since, you know, having to spend two years and a house with somebody who you don't really like, or even like just a little bit, can be excruciating. So we were very lucky oh, yeah, to have yeah, found I, each other. I know, I know all about that. You yes, know, you, you do. Got, you know my relationship <laughs> with Kendra. Back, 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 back in grad school, oh, man, yeah. that was that was rough. <laughs> yeah, but we we got along uh, we got along famously, and it should be said, by the way, that. If we lived in a sitcom, our house would have been like the main set. It would have been like Jerry's apartment on Seinfeld. Like the we hosted, you know, people throughout the throughout the entirety of that program. That's very true, and which is actually very meta because we would often put on uh, Seinfeld on uh, on mute and possess a character, a piece. Yeah, <laughs> assign each other a character. Im- improvise, improvise their dialogue. Yeah, those th- those are some good times. That 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 is just a rung below. The Star Wars marathon, which actually is my favorite Stillwell moment, because oh, that was so much. Fun. I we had we were we were on the cusp of graduation, and I remember I had never bought so much weed in my entire life. I think I bought like a half an ounce, and I was rolling a joint like every twenty five minutes or something. <laughs> and I just and we just sat. You got there. it from we, your boy, yeah. We just watched every. Every Star Wars movie, I think, in reverse, right? Yeah, we started off yeah. with Jedi, yeah. worked back in to reverse. Oh God, that was masochistic bliss <laughs> yeah we just uh we just got fucked up and just riffed on the movie and just like made fun of it and quoted lines and it, it was a great exercise in like a shared understanding of like what makes certain things funny you know like we all laughed at the same things you know and it was uh one of those things where you feel like your friends like really get you or really understand you you know like we all just kind of had the same sensibility and it was revealed in watching those movies yeah i think i think we all sh- i think what we shared most is a is that we understood the absurdity of existence. Like, you know, while I was like, we kind of looked around and we were just like, why don't these motherfuckers find this funny? You know, <laughs> like this is, you know. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, uh, our producers uh, have a, an excellent idea. We need to, we need to go back and say who we were on, on Seinfeld. Cause I kind of forget. I think I was Elaine. Was I Elaine? No, no, you were, George was George. George was George, which, you know, you know, come on. I believe Brian, on, you had yeah. Brian, you had to have been Kramer because if there's a Kramer at all in our group, it's definitely That's right. You. Yeah, come on. Yeah, that's right. Hold on. What the fuck is wrong with me? <laughs> and uh, Devin Devin was Elaine and then you were Seinfeld. Yeah, which, and then, which is appropriate. Then, yeah. Katie that's, Katie that's and Katie wasn't there. I don't believe Katie was there that night. Oh, Katie. <laughs> our producers are saying she, the, she was Newman. <laughs> <laughs> That's too yeah. much. We had a lot of good times at that house. I miss that place. Yeah, and it, and it, it probably inspired your collection absolutely in absolutely no fashion at all, right? No, well, uh, <laughs> other than other than you know your underlying consciousness. <laughs> well, four, three three pieces that made it into the collection were penned at the desk at that house. In a nutshell, the drift piece, which is about the boy counting the tiles on the chair. And right, uh, right. the Swedehead story, which is about the two architects who travel to the Ukraine and are inspecting the uh, the uh, right. building site. So those those three pieces lasted from the Sarah Lawrence days, quite surprisingly. Actually, all three of those, yeah, all three of those, which I read, and those were penned in Stillwell, which means inside your serial killer room. I never understood. 
how like how a a grown man could maintain themselves so and like just immaculately just immaculately yeah the forensic efficiency of a sociopath but it was beautiful it made my room look like a look like a tornado it struck (laughs) yeah george remember when i kissed you remember when i was dared to lick your belly button when you passed (laughs) i do yes i yeah oh my god i mean i I, I I don't remember you remember but oh, I recall Jared. you having informing me about it. Oh my god! I do not remember that, was, that. When did that happen? Uh, I think that was at the end of our second year. Uh, I have no knowledge of that event. <laughs> it was a chaotic time. It was a chaotic time. <laughs> Some weird shit went down at that house, but I never heard about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, th- that was a, yeah, that was a great night. I. Yeah, too much alcohol in that house, or not enough, or just the right amount. One of those. Was that the wait, um, wait, wait, wait? Was that was that the night that I? I think I remember that night. I think that was the night that I took your car because there was an event on campus, and there was this girl that I was kind of chasing, and I I took your car and went to campus, and when I came back, you were just like hammed off the bone, you know, wasted. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all you know, you know. And Michaela, I'm always Michaela was sitting alone. in the sink. Michaela was in the sink. Was that that night? That's right. Yeah. That could have been. There was, yeah, I I think so. But anyway, so yeah, let's get back on track here. Not that we weren't. We were just on a separate track, but I'm shunting. (laughs) But I shunt. Talk about some of the, yeah, how how shall I shunt? Yeah, so who who were like your influences at Sarah Lawrence uh, professor-wise? Well, of course, there's our good friend David Hollander. I actually found... Who's who's being... Well, I, I, I... I have to yeah, let's back and up. say that uh, he's, he's going to be our second novel coming out. Everyone should look forward to that. But anyway, that, yeah, he's, that's, that's right. David Hollander is the man. Anthropica. Yeah. He's like kind of the reason all of us fiction writers like almost like kind of went there. I mean, he's like the reason so many people go to Sarah Lawrence, you know, at least me and Katie, like specifically. But I mean, I know you and well, countless other people who've gone to Sarah Lawrence's grad program, the MFA program. Pretty much, like he's almost universally seen as the best professor there. You know, yeah, he's, um, he's but Garth, definitely. Though Garth was great, you know, I mean, David has this kind of special ability to connect with students. You know, he does. Well, David, David is definitely a magnet for a certain kind of student. I have to confess, I didn't know who David was. I hadn't done any research on him before I went to the school. In keeping with the anywhere but here attitude that I had when I was applying to grad programs, I think Katie said that she read like a novel from every single faculty member before she came to Sarah Lawrence. Yeah, she did, which is crazy to me. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I read David's book. I, I That might have been the only one I read before. I mean, just because he was kind of the reason I was going to go there. You know, I did. Yeah, yeah. So I confess that I actually didn't read anybody's novels. I barely even sort of glanced at their profiles. Sarah Lawrence was one of the last schools that I applied to. It wasn't until I got there that people started telling me about this guy named David Hollander and how it seemed like we had a lot of things in common and we would sort of jive with each other philosophically and in terms of our our taste in fiction. But I didn't take a class with David until the start of my second year. So the first year, the class that probably had the biggest impact on me was Garth Hallberg's class, which was all about dramaturgy in fiction. I have to confess, I was I was like, I was a bit of a pissant when I started at Sarah Lawrence and I kind of acted that you were. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I 
And I kind of, I kind of acted like I doubted that there was anything that any teacher was going to tell me that was going to be useful, you know, like, uh, and also, <laughs> also my favorite pissant Jared moment is our first semester in Mary LaChapelle's class. And someone, I'm not going to, you know, obviously I don't even want to name names here, but <laughs> someone's no, story, <laughs> remember someone's story, didn't it, didn't it like start, didn't it start with a dream or something? Yeah. And you it's go, it, ap- You know, I started your yeah. story and you know, it, it started with a dream and I was just like, Ugh, and you just put your face in your hands <laughs> yeah. and I'm like, you just did that in a workshop. <laughs> well, it was, as I recall, the story began with a character coming out of a dream and then sort of doing a post-game analysis of what the dream could mean. And that just seemed to me like a very bad way to start out a story. And all I could do was muster a groan of discontent. Can we can we but, talk for a minute, like all three of us, uh, just for the benefit of some of our listeners who may not understand what is so uh, hackneyed about beginning a narrative in this way? Can we just discuss real quick why this is inadvisable? Jared, would you like to clarify, given that you were the one that supplied the groan in question well for starters i just don't think dreams are very interesting material for fiction i mean how many how many great books have you read that are about dreams you know or how many great books can you think of that have really great dream sequences in them or have any dreams at all in them there's a few maybe examples finnegan's wake is one long dream but finnegan's wake is impossible to read kafka is all dream but it doesn't acknowledge that it's a dream which is why it succeeds you know, it has its kind of own inner logic to it. Nabokov, I think, famously distrusted writing about dreams. Henry James said, tell a dream, lose a reader. It's just not something that <laughs> is universal. You can't grab onto it. You can't grab onto it uh, in the way that you can with things in our social life. And that's probably why it doesn't succeed in any way on the page is because it's not it's not universal. It's unique to you. It's what Freud called the polymorphous perverse. It's all your sort of subconscious kinks and quirks and strange affinities and obsessions with holes and phallic structures and things like that. It's not interesting (laughs) material for writing. Yeah. I mean, I I generally, I generally agree. I, you know, all, all of these things, you know, all of these rules have exceptions of course, but I always find dreams more than anything. I, I generally just find dreams to be boring as shit. And like, you have to be able to really pull it back into a sort of, I mean, just like comprehensible narrative because dreams are inherently incomprehensible. Even dream analysis is just kind of as, as fruitful as it can be. It's just incredibly hard work. And to do that work for a book and to make it digestible and like somewhat entertaining, you know, more than, you know, more than just some hodgepodge of meaning, I think it's just very difficult. Yeah. Our producers are very intent on 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 providing the example of a uh, fever dream which came out pretty recently right oh i haven't yeah, i haven't recently. read that which which is an exception but you know i you know i generally agree well there's nothing more uh, boring there's nothing more boring than listening to someone tell you about their dream isn't there it can be <laughs> I, tough I, no. it can be tough yeah. i i mean the, the the significance of it is 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 i think you touched on jared is, is subjective so it's it's so it's so difficult to to justify that flight of sort of in narrative fancy within the narrative itself. It's just so difficult to, to, to justify why I read that. Right. And I, I accuse, I accuse uh, certain directors of this a lot. JJ Abrams being one that he just does not care. You know, he's going to take you where he wants to take you and he doesn't care how, how cheap it is. And that's, that's the thing about dream sequences and the narrative that I find uh, offensive. It's just, it's, it's just this, this, 
cheapening of of the present moment and the narrative. I mean, when when you talk about and, and you see this a lot, I think, in, in popular fiction and popular uh, TV and cinema, that you have these very well structured dreams that uh, are then like recurring perhaps to the character and then they have to go back and figure the significance out what is so and so trying to what's my what's my dead aunt trying to tell me about my job as an automotive salesman right uh, who gives a shit <laughs> or, a, a, shit? or a, uh, or a or a a barn assistant <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> or a barn assistant right what what is my what is my dead dog from the 12th grade trying to tell me about the dangers of being a barn assistant. Just get to the fucking <laughs> story. Why are we having dreams? I don't believe that. Dreams don't happen like that, right? I have, you know, you have a dream where it's you've got your pants off in the middle of an auditorium while uh, Abraham Lincoln is given a speech. They're absurd. The brain doesn't, the brain is not really going about its business trying to help you figure out your life problems. It's not like, the brain's not sitting back going, I bet that if I can just get Marilyn Monroe to do cartwheels down Fifth Avenue while they're passing in a, in a prop plane, which is uh, skywriting something about their father, that they'll be able to figure out that they really need to quit their job and find another one, right? The brain doesn't know. It's just nonsense. It's nonsense, and that's why you don't use it in fiction. Don't do it. Yeah, honestly, I and having gone through three years of psychoanalysis, I don't need fucking more dreams to analyze on, on in a book. Truly. Yeah, although I should I should say at the moment I'm reading 2666 by Bolaño, and there's actually a few dream sequences in there that are not bad. Yeah, I think he, he does that kind of thing a lot, and sometimes he pulls it off, sometimes it's... Uh, I mean, to be honest, Bolaño's one one of the biggest things he suffers from is being boring as shit. So <laughs> it's not really surprising. But yeah, so uh, unfortunately, our producers have to hop off in about ten minutes or so. So we were wondering if Jared, if you wanted to read like a section out of in a nutshell, is that possible? I can give me a second to try to call it up. I don't know if that's probably the best story to read from because it's not really self contained. It's like one long paragraph. That's true, but it, yeah. But I can read from. It's stuff. just that we were talking about it, you know. Yeah, it, it would just be nice. You can choose something else if you if you really feel that feel that desire. All right, so I I have something here. It's not from in a nutshell because that I can't find something that's self contained. But I do have an excerpt from another story that I can read if you want. Yeah, yeah let's do it. So for context, this this is an excerpt from a story about a deprogrammed Islamist who is imprisoned in India. Sorry, excuse me, not in India. Is imprisoned in Egypt and is then released, and he de-radicalizes and becomes something of a public intellectual and a force of, you know, de-radicalization in the West. So, no, like, like are, are we talking, like, apostate, or, like, or like still is, is like, still follows Islam, but is not radical uh, anymore? An apostate. Okay. Uh, the, character, the character was actually loosely based on people like Ayan Hirsi Ali or Majid Nawaz, if anybody knows who they are. And if they don't, um, I would recommend you you look up who Majid Nawaz is or Ayan Hirsi Ali because they're great people doing great work, work that needs to be done. So they're sort of uh, ex-radicals, apostates. Uh, this guy's an ex-radical, ex-apostate who becomes sort of a public intellectual in the West. And he's in New York meeting with the editor from the publishing company who's going to publish his memoir. They go to the moment together and they look at some modernist art. And then they're going to walk back out down Fifth Avenue. And this is where the passage picks up. And then they were out again on the elm-lined avenue, walking into a light snow, the warm shop windows and diode lights buzzing above. Flags hung from frontage, huge and successive, nodding in the wind. 
And here again were the winter gatherers, each different from before, but identical, en masse, being pulled into the orbit of the overbright evergreen at the center of the plaza. Around the corner, a different crowd was gathering under the crouching limbs of the bronze atlas statue. A scaffold was going up around St. Patrick's Cathedral, climbing its spires, crowding its rose window and making blocks of its gothic angles, the needle points that knifed the air. But the platforms and steel continued up beyond the structure, so that at least a full story of space above the cathedral itself was occupied with just scaffolding, along with the segment of sky contained between the spires. This lattice, now bound to nothing, seemed to be the next stage in its development, just as it was, so that it was no longer the frame that enclosed the structure, but rather the structure itself, reaching up, describing the sky, and the sea above. This transformation was easily included among the soaring verticality of steel and glass in the surrounding Saks, Olympic Tower, Trump Tower, another building undergoing maintenance before a winter snow. This intersection of idols, inheritance, and symbolism was nonsensically and vertiginously layered. It put into him the familiar angst of homelessness, the absence of a firm place, the reliability of knowing and belonging. But there was no condescension in the feeling, nothing heretical or profane as he would have once described it. The feeling was in fact affirmative, speaking to America's immaculate power of irony and integration, those rip currents of modernity. He considered moving to America many times. Each visit, he thought, would, be the, would make the induction final. This had always been a model society for those of lost or abandoned faith, as well as those who considered themselves among the chosen and the righteous. Over 800 of these chosen and righteous, the defeated foot soldiers of the caliphate, would now be returning to the shores of the West, which had failed modernity in this respect. How many would be returning to the American continent? How many had left in the first place? And all the others would be arriving as well, and were arriving at this very moment, dropping into JFK and LaGuardia, nuclear families from all across Arabia and North Africa, those now degraded Hobbesian states that were once named the nursery of civilization. Very cool. Yeah, I, I have not read that one yet. That, I'm, I'm super pumped to read that one. Yeah, now. that's great. Yeah, that's really good shit. Is it, was that the beginning, Jared? No, that's somewhere near the end. Somewhere near the end. Oh, interesting. What, stru- what struck me most is that, you know, you began there, and, I, you know, this isn't the beginning of the story, as you just mentioned, but uh, you began there with a very kind of, like, Jared-esque metaphysical sort of drop-in, you know? It kind of transitioned pretty seamlessly into a more internal like a paradoxically internal but collective sort of view of what's going on with like kind of the the general feeling of like Islamic extremism and and you know the the you know as you said the uh, apostate apostasy I guess if if that's the word for it apostasy apostasy <laughs> yeah there you go I'm really excited to read that and did you did you say the title for that what what was that called the title of that piece is called the lovers interesting. Huh. Which, based on that passage, you know, it's you wouldn't be able to tell from it. The the reason for that title is contained somewhere else in the story. It's actually the title of a Magritte painting that I really love. Oh, that is Ooh, a good one. Magritte. Yeah, that's a yeah. good one. Love it. Yeah, so tell us where we can get your book and, um, I don't know, any, any other information that you find pertinent. Okay, well, uh, the book will be available on March 15th on crowsnestbooks.com, which is my publisher. It will be available exclusively on Crow's Nest for about two months, and then sometime in the middle of May, it will have a wider release, and it will be available on other platforms like the Zon and bookstores, <laughs> bookstores nationwide, hopefully. So 
Uh, if you're looking for it, that's where it's found. In addition to that, I have some journalism and some essays that can be found online uh, as well on websites like 3AM Magazine and Political Animal. At the moment, I'm also currently finalizing the last stages of the contract for an agreement with Political Animal to publish my first novel, actually, Venus and Document. So they're going to run that one as oh, well. Oh, nice. whoa, whoa, whoa. This is news. You you kept this under wraps. I didn't hear about this. I did, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I, I think that's the right move. I mean, um, it seemed like it seemed like the the agent wasn't getting it done. <laughs> although, it's, although it's nice to have an agent on your side, though, which is good. Yeah. So the guys at Political Animal are going to publish Venus and Document, the first novel, and hopefully that'll be released in the spring or summer of uh, 2020 next year. Perfect. Yeah. Now, now uh, you and now you and David can go on tour together. That's right. <laughs> Bussing it together. <laughs> Fuck yeah. All right. Cool. I think uh, I think we're good, guys. And anything else you guys want to mention? George, what do you got? Tell it. Give us a progress support on Total Recall too. Oh man, I, you know, <laughs> I, I, I've just been, I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking more and more about Total Recall too. The first one takes place on Mars, right? Which is great. It's really good. But I think we got to go further. I think we got to go to like one of the moons of Jupiter, maybe for the next <laughs> one. And you know, if Arnold's not available, I. I, it's going to be tough. I don't know who else we're going to... The easy answer would be Chris Pratt, but frankly, I don't think he could do Total Recall. Right? I don't think he could do yeah, it. Yeah, that's that's tough. And I don't think he's Jason kind of Momoa a He's, he's a little either. bit too sanguine. You it know mean, what I mean? It like, he's, he's too just a little, likable. He's a little blithe. Yeah. You know, I, can't, <laughs> I want to see a man rip throats. I cannot watch Chris Pratt rip throats like you can watch Arnold yeah. Schwarzenegger rip. So no, I not think that we're going to have to de-age him. We're gonna to have to de-age him like like we've de-aged Samuel L. Jackson and many others. We're gonna to have to de-age Arnold <laughs> and and send his ass to Mars again, maybe beyond. Great, yeah. No, we'll uh, we'll package we'll package that little uh, hot take as a uh, as a preview for our Total Recall two episode. We, I mean, I, still, I actually believe no, we can total, make it happen. I still believe we can. Total Recall two part two actually because oh, like um you know that's what the. Uh, yeah, our, our previous episode will be called Total Recall 2. Yeah, let's do this together. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, yes, let's do this together. Hashtag let's do this together. Okay, that's it for today's episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review on whichever platform you're listening. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at Animal Riot Press or Facebook and Instagram under the same name or through our website, AnimalRiotPress.com. This has been the 13th episode of the Animal Riot Podcast with your host, Brian Birnbaum, and featuring George Sawaya and Jared Pollan. Transcripts for our deaf and hard of hearing animals are provided by Jonathan Kay, and we are produced by me, Katie Rainey. See you later, you filthy animals. Belly.